Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley. We know that chronic inflammation is at the root of every single degenerative disease. And so if we're going to thrive in life, we've got to do things to help encourage a healthy inflammation response in our body. One of the best ways we can do that is take herbs that help support inflammation and keep inflammation under control. The most well-studied herb for doing that is turmeric. Turmeric inhibits the inflammatory nuclear factor kappa beta and STAT3 pathways. These are genetic pathways that amplify inflammation in our body. And by inhibiting these, turmeric really helps support good blood flow, joint health, brain function, our ability to think sharply and quickly and have good memory, mood, and just an overall good mindset. Now, when it comes to taking turmeric, you know, certainly we can be putting it on our, our food, you know, and taking food-based uh, forms of turmeric, right? A lot of people will use the most well-studied compound, which is curcumin. However, what we know is that whole food-based turmeric has nearly 300 other beneficial components than just curcumin alone. And so again, curcumin is extremely powerful, but the research shows that taking a whole food-based turmeric complex can be much more beneficial. Now, the problem with turmeric is that it notoriously has low bioavailability on its own, and the body has a hard time absorbing it. It really needs a good soluble fat to absorb it. And that's why Paleo Valley, with their turmeric complex, they added coconut oil. I mean, you think about like a like a curry with turmeric and coconut oil, and it's got different warming herbs, black pepper. You know, it's a, a, a popular Indian dish, the curry. That's really what allows it to absorb the best, the fat, the warming herbs. And that's what Paleo Valley did when they created their turmeric complex. They added coconut oil, they added black pepper, and that combination has been shown to increase the absorption of turmeric by 2,000%. On top of that, they also added in ginger, rosemary, and cloves, which are herbs that really support brain, brain function. They support healthy inflammation, immune health, good digestion, and blood sugar stability. So you get all of that in the Paleo Valley turmeric complex. I'm a huge advocate of this supplement. I take it on a regular basis. And you can take it now as well and get a special discount. In fact, go to paleovalley.com forward slash drjockers. And use the coupon code JOCKERS, just my last name, JOCKERS at checkout. That will save you 15% off your order. So guys, if you want to keep inflammation under control and really thrive in life, 
Try out the Paleo Valley Turmeric Complex today. Again, use the coupon code JOCKERS at checkout to save 15%. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We've got an exciting topic. You guys love to learn about intermittent fasting strategies, low-carb, carb cycling. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about some of the unique angles on how we need to implement intermittent fasting, keto, low-carb, and carb cycling for women specifically. You know, women have a unique hormone balance, and it can be very, very delicate. And so we've got to really understand how our body works and how to really go through the rhythms of feast, famine, cycling. And we've got a great guest. This is Cynthia Turlow. And Cynthia is a CEO and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project, nurse practitioner, international speaker, and globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health. She has over 20 years experience in health and wellness and is a two-time TEDx speaker. Her second talk, Intermittent Fasting, a Transformative Technique, has over 8 million views. It's one of the most viewed um, talks that's out there, particularly when it comes to intermittent fasting. And so she really hit it with that. And she's also been featured on a lot of different media, ABC, Fox 5, uh, and other, other sources as well. And in 2020, Cynthia was listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21 founders changing the way we do business. And her, her podcast, which you guys can check out as well, Everyday Wellness, was listed as 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021 by Business Insider. And you can find her at CynthiaTurlow.com. She does intermittent fasting masterclasses. We're going to talk about that and some of the unique angles that she comes at intermittent fasting with. So Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Well, for sure. And so let's talk about how you got started with keto, low carb. I know, you know, you're in the medical field. So let's talk about that. And then how you discovered this sort of eating practice and intermittent fasting. Well, I think, you know, the nutrition piece came first. Uh, when I turned 40, I just decided that uh, it was time to get a little bit more creative with how I was eating. I thought I was a pretty healthy eater, you know, the heart healthy grains and all that nonsense that were literally yeah. fed by big yeah. ag. And so initially I went gluten-free and the side effect of gluten-free was finding out that I got rid of an autoimmune issue that I'd had since being treated for Lyme disease. So I had psoriasis, although a very mild case. My dermatologist was stunned. She just said, I can't believe that you got rid of this just with changing, just removing gluten from your diet. So it started there. And then I got more interested in paleo. And so uh, probably that was probably where I initiated going low, low carb mm. um, and did that for a while until I crashed and burned uh, in perimenopause. And mm. so obviously one of the things that can happen is if you go too low carb for too long and you're not having refeeds and you're you know, not making an effort to really, you know, work on supporting the endocrine system, it will backfire. And so kind of fell into the perimenopause. Like I always say, I flew into it like a wall, you know, it was like, I hit it yeah. hard. And as someone who had always been fit and lean and healthy, all of a sudden the not enough sleep, highly stressful job. I worked for a very successful cardiology practice in Washington, DC. And even as an NP, it was a very, very demanding job. I had two little boys at home, a husband mm. who did a lot of international travel, which is too much. So I had to make some significant changes. And, and one of those that I did was 
kind of got interested in fasting. It was like, okay, if I can't sustain low carb all the time, I need to rethink what I'm doing. Mm. And that's when I found intermittent fasting. And so for me, I think of it as, you know, it healed me in many ways and kind of reestablished this status quo, this homeostasis that I like to be. And I could go back to carb cycling. I had to be more deliberate about what I was doing. And, you know, that was really where it started. And then uh, I left clinical medicine five years ago uh, this month, which was a huge decision to make. And when I did that, uh, and this, you'll find this humorous and probably your listeners will as well. I literally took a leap of faith. I just said to my husband, who's an engineer, very fiscally conservative. I said, I know that I'm going to be successful. And he said, that's great. You have no business plan, (laughs) no way of making a living. And you still have, you know, a mountain of student loan debt. Like, why are you doing this? And so I just was becoming so increasingly disillusioned with the medical model of treating symptoms. And I wrote a ton of prescriptions and it just, it was very disheartening. And and my feeling is, and, and what I say to every single person I interact with is it all starts with food, you know, whether you're eating or not eating, it all starts with our diet. And so that was the working platform that I stepped off on, what I didn't realize was that uh, almost immediately women were drawn to working with me because they felt that I really understood what they had gone through, where they were going through, the changes that go on with our bodies as, as we're getting you know older. Um, and you know, age is just a number, but we want to yeah. ensure that we're aging as proactively as we can. So that that's a little bit of the journey to getting me from point A to point B. But you know, my, my standard mantra is it all starts with food. And then the second mantra is eat less often. And if you follow those two things, you know, you're generally going to be much healthier than the bulk of the population. Yeah. Those are really important principles. Now you said that when you hit perimenopause, it hits you hard. And Mm -hmm. I know you're an expert in this as a nurse practitioner, something you did your first TEDx talk on. So let's talk about what's happening in the female body during perimenopause. Yeah. So typically they say it's five to seven years preceding menopause. It's probably more like 10. And women, unlike men, we are born with a finite amount of of eggs in our ovaries. So if I'm in my forties, my eggs are 40 years old. And so what starts to happen, what really hearkens the changes that are occurring in a woman's body is that progesterone, which is predominantly produced in the ovaries during the cycling years, starts to wane. And initially people may start to have sleep disturbances, they may have some weight gain, but what it creates is this relative estrogen dominance. If that isn't already something that women are dealing with because of exogenous sources outside the body or just not properly packaging up extra estrogen in the body and getting rid of it um, can really be problematic. And this is when, when we have this estrogen dominance, we have the crime scene periods. There's no other way to put it. We have a lot of breast tenderness. You may have fibrocystic breasts, um, terrible PMS, sleep disturbances, weight gain. And there's no woman that's listening to this or man for that matter who enjoys gaining weight. And it's kind of as if you get this double-handed reverse puberty situation, but those symptoms can wax and wane for years. And unfortunately, kind of the allopathic traditional medicine mindset is we're going to put you on synthetic hormones we are going to ablate your uterus or we're going to remove your uterus or we're just going to kind of let you, you know, we're going to put you on antidepressants and we're going to, you know, tell you that there's, there's nothing wrong with you. Your thyroid is fine. Your gut health is fine. But what really starts to also happen is that we become less resilient in terms of stress. And I remind people that it's our, it's mother's nature's way of reinforcing 
that we are really in the sandwich generation. We probably have children at home. We probably have aging parents. Um, we're probably at a position in, in our occupation where we very likely have increasing demands. And so there's a lot of stress, you know, outside the context yeah. of what's gone on the last year in the pandemic. And so we become much more sensitive to stress. And so we have to become more proactive about not staying in fight or flight, that sympathetic dominance that most, if not all people are in. And it's not as if in the autonomic nervous system that we're just in the sympathetic or just in the parasympathetic. We kind of ebb and flow back and forth, but we really need to you know, proactively work at stress management, whether it's meditation or gratitude journaling or getting outside nature. We also, because of the you know, impact of sleep quality, uh, we know that if you're not sleeping more than seven, eight hours a night of sleep, getting high quality sleep, that's also important. One of the other things that can happen is with that fluctuating amount of progesterone sleep impact, sleep can be impacted rather adversely. And it may not be that people have trouble falling asleep, but most, if not all women suddenly will say, I wake up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning and I toss and turn or I get hot or maybe I'm having hot flashes or maybe I'm just warm and this is unusual for me. Yeah. And so, you know, the sleep quality piece really begets, unfortunately, a lot of blood sugar dysregulation, you know, uh, you know, cortisol involvement, um, you know, can be hugely problematic balancing leptin and ghrelin, which are these, you know, key satiety and hunger hormones, which can cause us to overeat junk. I always remind people that I remember when I, my baby, my boys were young and they were being breastfed and, you know, they were getting up every two hours a night, which is brutal for any of the women listening that are still on that stage, brutal. And I would say to my husband, the beneficial thing of breastfeeding was that you could eat anything and everything. But the detrimental thing was when you stopped breastfeeding, you had to go back to eating normal. But when we don't get enough sleep, we don't crave broccoli. We crave hyper palatable, highly processed stuff. You crave sugar. And so that can be detrimental to our waistline. And then lastly, you know, that stress, if it's not properly mitigated, can uh, impact immune function. And so we can develop things like leaky gut. You can get opportunistic infections. I got a parasite infection. I had H. pylori. I mean, all these things that in my allopathic brain, I just couldn't quite wrap my head around. And so yeah. I just remind women that, you know, perimenopause doesn't have to be a bumpy ride, but for many of us it is. And I almost think that perimenopause, that transitional period before women go through menopause, uh, really can be, can set us up for success moving forward, or it can be so profoundly difficult that women will say, I almost feel like I don't know who I am anymore. Like I'm just lost adrift at sea. I'm inflamed. I've gained weight. Um, I feel like I'm just not as connected. And so, you know, from, from my perspective, even as an, as a traditional Western medicine trained NP, I want women to feel empowered at midlife and not feel like they have to throw in the towel and just walk around in moo-moos because something that was said to me that, that I, I love to talk about was someone said to me, well, you're 44 years old. Don't you think this is the way things are just meant to be? And I said, forget that. I was like, I don't buy into that. I refuse to accept that weight gain is a normal function of aging. I just don't, I don't embrace that. I, I don't accept that. And I don't want other people to either. Yeah, I love that mentality. And yeah, perimenopause is uh, is definitely a, a challenging season, but you're right. It can set you up for a really healthy thriving life well into your 50s 60s 70s and 80s and so you just got to take the right steps and so let's talk about 
nutrition and how you utilize that when you're working with, because I would imagine most of the women, most of the, your clients that you're working with one-on-one are in this sort of perimenopause transition into menopause. Um, so let's, let's talk about the strategies that you utilize with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say first and foremost, uh, I like to use diagnostic testing that, that part yeah. of my Western medicine mindset, although I'm also functionally trained is yeah. still alive and well. And I like to start with underlying food sensitivities. And as sad as it is, uh, you know, things like gluten and dairy and alcohol in particular can be hugely inflammatory. And I find those are three of the big ones, but we'll do, uh, you know, kind of targeted uh, food sensitivity testing. We start with that. And then I like to look at uh, DNA based stool testing like GI map. And that's a starting point. I always remind people that we can create a very personalized food elimination diet, but I generally like everyone to be gluten and dairy free as a starter. Uh, alcohol, you know, unfortunately we have this like drinking culture and, and I, I don't think the pandemic has probably done anyone any favors yeah. in this regard, but women in particular in middle age, we know that alcohol consumption, I've had people tell me I fall asleep when I drink, when I, when I drink only when I drink, can I not sleep? We know it dysregulates melatonin. It bumps up cortisol, it impacts your blood sugar, and it's almost a guaranteed, I'm not going to sleep well. So when I see women in their 40s that are really struggling or early 50s, we oftentimes have to have that hard discussion about alcohol use. And it's not to suggest you don't drink. I'm not certainly not advocating that people be completely absent if that's not what they enjoy, but just being smart uh, about when they're going to consume alcohol. Because in our bodies, our bodies will actually metabolize alcohol first because it's considered to be a toxin. Um, but in terms of like really looking at the nutrition piece, I encourage women to really focus on animal-based protein and healthy fats. You know, fats have unfortunately um, have been bastardized for so many years that a lot of the retraining I have to do is encouraging women. Yes, I actually want you to have avocado. Yes, I actually want you to have some olive oil. Yes, I think if you want to add a healthy fat to a smoothie, add some MCT oil. Uh, because, or if you're cooking, if you're cooking in lard or you're, you know, using, um, you know, other types of fats, like duck fat is wonderful to fry in if people are, are using uh, or going or roasting in uh, because it's incredibly flavorful. So really dispelling a lot of the myths. And unfortunately it's starting to also happen with animal-based protein as well. But I remind people, uh, and as this, this is one example that, you know, six ounces of steak is equivalent to like six cups of quinoa as a protein. Yeah. Women in particular have to be very, very careful about their carbohydrate intake in middle age. And this is a bummer. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first person to say, I did not appreciate my twenties and thirties enough because had I known I would have enjoyed more carbohydrates than I did, but it doesn't mean that you don't have carbs. It just means you're smart about it, very yeah. targeted. So one of the things that we work on is, going low or carb, if the average American is consuming 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day, which is average, which means there are more people doing way more than that yeah. Oh, yeah. with all the sugary coffees and, and junk food. And so I, I say, let's go lower carb as a start. Like it could be, let's try 150 grams or less or hundred grams. I, I don't necessarily recommend everyone do keto because keto oftentimes is not done well with women, meaning unknowingly women kind of step into a minefield. They'll eat too much healthy fats, too much of any one thing is not a beneficial thing. And so, you know, that, that carbohydrate discussion has to be had. And I prefer non-grain, non-gluten. Um, I really like, you know, if someone's cycling up on their carbs, it's, you know, root vegetables. And, you know, if you tolerate 
uh, you know, low glycemic berries and, and, and things like that. I mean, there's certainly like, I'm a big fan of spaghetti squash, but when I eat spaghetti squash, it's like half a cup. I don't eat copious amounts of these things because I just don't tolerate them. And that's unfortunate that we become increasingly more insulin resistant as we have this loss of estradiol as our uh, intrinsic estrogen is is kind of waxing and waning heading into menopause. And so that's usually the the focus is animal-based protein and healthy fats, you know, cycling in some carbohydrates, depending on what their goals are. If someone's at a healthy weight, I think that it's completely reasonable to have a, a carb up day or sometimes called a flex day. Um, if someone's still getting their menstrual cycle, they have to be mindful of, you know, fasting and their carbohydrate intake the week before. Uh, what I find that's interesting is once women in menopause get to a, a weight that they're happy with, or, you know, whatever their body composition they're really looking for. I always say, don't focus on the weight. How do your clothes fit? How do you feel? What's your energy like? That can be hugely beneficial, but they actually, I think, get to have the most fun with their nutrition and their their fasting regimens because they don't have to worry about mm. the you know amount of cycling hormones yeah. that they did while they were still getting their period. And I always say uh, men and menopausal women have the most fun with fasting because there aren't as many restrictions, there aren't as many rules. And I find that for a lot of people's personalities, that really resonates for them. Yeah, for sure. I, I found the same that, you know, men for sure, you know, the easiest people to get fasting, usually within a week they adapt and they feel a lot better. And then the toughest, really the toughest group is your very lean, um, very active and stressed uh, menstruating females, right? Yep. So just kind of like what you were talking about there. Yep. Um, especially if they've had years of stress, like, so they've built up a lot, you know, they've lowered their level of resilience. Um, like when they're in their late thirties and early forties, that can be really tough. But if they're lean in general, you know, the uh, women have a very sensitive threshold for how much body mm -hmm. fat they can have. And if you go under that threshold, then the body says we can't, you know, we can't produce fertility hormones because this isn't a good environment to bring a child into because there's too much famine. The foods, there's not enough food. So exactly. we've got to, and that's why those feast days, those carb cycling really tells the body, okay, food's abundant. You know, it's abundant here. And so we can get the benefits of feasting and famine uh, when we do it the right way. And so, and that's obviously what you're specializing in. And you're obviously, you know, I'm looking at you, you're very lean. So you're in that demographic. And, and a lot of people out there would say, oh, you're lean. You can't, you shouldn't be fasting. Right? I, I have, I have heard that I have been. So what's always funny is that uh, if you're on social media, you get criticized for the things that sometimes you're like, yes, I'm a female that's middle-aged. I mean, what am I? What I, someone said to me one day, what are you like 70? And I'm like, seriously, um, now I just laugh about it. But, but I think there's this misnomer that you have to have been morbidly obese to be able to coach or teach. And I tell people all the time, I'm like my experience when I hit perimenopause and I'm, I'm not a very tall person, I'm only five, three, despite people yeah. always assuming I'm like five, eight. I'm like, that's great. If on camera, I look really tall. That's a wonderful, wonderful attribute that I look a lot taller than I am. But I remind people that I've been working with obese overweight people my nearly my entire you know career and so it doesn't mean that it's that my opinion is any less valuable because i myself have not struggled with morbid obesity but i do remind people that i, I think that in many ways you know when we're looking at a lean cycling woman who's you know north south of like 35 years old so still fairly young prime of their fertility you know, that person may only be able to fast like a couple days a week and that's okay. Like these people that kind of run with an idea and they're so rigid. I'm like, we should not be rigid. We have to be flexible. We have to be fluid. 
um, especially if you're still in your peak fertility years. And so there's so much fear mongering that goes on about women. Um, in fact, there's a well-regarded researcher who I, I won't mention this person's name, but she, this individual would not even come on my podcast because she feels so strongly about intermittent fasting in women. But when you're working with an athlete, which is not who I work with, that is a very different animal, literally, than you know the average person. And, and I think that you know when we talk about menstruation and, and fertility, I always say, like, think of your your menstrual cycle as your sixth vital sign. It's as important as blood pressure and pulse and temperature and all these other things. And much to your point, that if our body senses that we're not in an advantageous stage, if we don't have enough nutrients or there's too much stress, like I always say, hormetic stress is good. Too much of any one thing is not beneficial. And so, you know, for the I think about the women that overexercise, don't sleep enough over restrict their food. And they're like, oftentimes the worst candidates for fasting. I'll say to them fast once a month. Like, I, I don't think you need to be doing this every day because it's just creating more stress and strain on that body. And, and the endocrine system, which I never had enough respect for before I left clinical medicine. And I do now just the recognition that our body is taking in all this sensory information. It's listening to what we're telling ourselves internally. And you're really setting yourself up for, uh, ending up, you know, crashing and burning and you don't want to be, trust me, it took me like a year. I had a year. I could only walk. I went from doing like hardcore conditioning classes, almost at the level of CrossFit to an entire year of just walking outside. Like literally that's the kind of physical activity I could handle because my body was just so thrashed. And I don't want that for other people. I was definitely that person who thought I was invincible. And a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true, especially when they're young and they kind of hit that wall mm -hmm. and they don't know how to recover and rebound from it. So yeah. And that's where obviously carb cycling can help really prioritizing stress reduction, sleep, all those different strategies that you talked about, um, because we've got to create an adaptive and, you know, basically an adaptive surplus in mm -hmm. a sense, you know, um, so we can have threshold between, uh, or basically like some, some gap between how much we're stressing our body Mm -hmm. and how much basically our, our, our tolerance point. We need a little bit of gap there. We want to push our system. We do want to challenge and stress our system, but we don't want to overwhelm the system. Kind of like if you wanted to be in good shape, um, but you were sedentary, you had taken a year off exercise, you wouldn't just go out and um, you know run a 5K, right? You would go and take a walk around your block or something like mm -hmm. that. You got to build up. You got to build up your level of fitness. Kind of the same thing with your metabolic flexibility. You got to build that up. Um, and so let's talk about, you know, again, building up metabolic flexibility, right. And kind of where you take somebody, you know, your average individual, where they come in and how you like to start to graduate them up. Yeah, that's a great question. So metabolic flexibility is always the key. That's really what we want uh, to be able to tap into different sources of fuel. And so if I'm talking about the average person who's been eating, you know, three meals a day, many meals and snacking until bedtime, uh, you know, the first step is really removing the snacking. I'm like, no one should be snacking. When my teenage boys were young, yes, they snacked because their metabolisms are like hummingbirds. Yeah. But as adults, no one listening needs snacks. A snack tells me that you need to restructure your meal. So first we remove the snacks yeah. and then we start to restructure our macros. So macros are protein, fat, and carbohydrates. But obviously as adults, and I know this is a painful realization for people to hear, we technically do not need carbohydrates. I know we love carbohydrates. You know, carbohydrates are fun, 
but our body can actually make carbohydrates from protein. So it's this really cool scientific term called gluconeogenesis. So when we're, when we're making this transition, the first transition, stopping snacking, then we restructure macros. So really focused on animal protein and healthy fats and the realization and education about the fact that we become physiologically more insulin resistant the later in the day that we go. So if you're going to have a carb up day or it's a day where you're going to integrate a little bit more carbohydrates, it should be earlier in the day. So maybe if you're breaking your fast with protein and some carbohydrates, that's fine, but it's not going to be crappy carbohydrates. You're not sitting down with a bucket of rice. It may be non-starchy vegetables. Um, you may integrate, maybe this is the day you have a little bit of squash or sweet potato with your meal, but not copious amounts. And so, you know, that that's the first kind of layer. But I also remind people just to backtrack that if you're not sleeping through the night, so a lot of women come to intermittent fasting, they're desperate to get results. They've seen and heard all these results that other people have gotten. And I remind them that if you can't sleep through the night, you cannot intermittent fast successfully. So I always say that sleeping is foundational to our health, figure out why you're not sleeping first. And it could be as simple as you need to restructure your macros. It could be you need to dial in on stress. It may be, you know, much like when our children are young and they have a, a ritual before bedtime, I would say, you know, there was a whole ritual my kids had before bedtime to tell them that their bodies, it was time to go to sleep. And I said, sometimes middle-aged women and even middle-aged men need the same, you know, whether it's um, getting, you know, wearing blue blockers, getting into the habit of, um, you know, doing some magnesium spray, uh, you know, reading a book, getting off electronics, et cetera, can really be beneficial. So, you know, that then, you know, the, the checkbox on the no snacking, then you're restructuring your macros. And then my feeling is always to be a little bit conservative with fasting, because for many people, it's, it blows their minds to think that they're not going to eat from 6 p.m. when they finish their dinner until 8 a.m. in the morning because they've gotten so, con, you know, kind of, it's become the norm that they snack until they go to bed. And then when they get up in the morning, they're having these fatty coffees or sugary coffee drinks and they're going to work. And so their bodies never really get an opportunity to have this digestive rest. So the next step is really kind of figuring out, okay, can we get you from dinner time until breakfast not to eat anything or to drink anything that will break your fast? And then I find you know, people start to have more mental clarity and they have more energy and that encourages them. But there are always people, and I don't know if this has been your experience, that sometimes the most carb addicted people are the ones that struggle the most with the process of, of moving towards fat adaptation. And so sometimes we'll work with just 30 minute increments. Okay, so you fast for 14 hours and you can handle that, but you get to 8.30 in the morning and you crash and they're like, okay, so what we need to do is just back it up by 30 minutes then, you know, figuring out how are we going to structure, you know, your macros kind of moving forward throughout the day. But I, I do find that the, the process of people getting accustomed, um, especially women is anywhere from four to eight weeks. It really depends on the individual. I find that, uh, you know, figuring out their why, like, why do they want to have this freedom? Why do they want to try this strategy is what they really stay focused on when, uh, you know, they, they feel like they're, they use the term, these are terms they use. I don't use, I would say no one is weak. That is a mindset shift. You just have to say, this is a day when I need to break my fast earlier and that's okay. Giving them permission to acknowledge that, uh, you know, every day is going to be unique. And I think for many people, and I'm sure you see this as well, food is not fuel, food is comfort. So when you take away, you know, their comfort that they're enjoying throughout the day or when they're stressed, all of a sudden they are forced to kind of adapt to 
either dealing with those uncomfortable feelings or seeking out support, or maybe instead of, you know, eating a bag of chips, when they get stressed, they're going to go for a walk. And I, I just remind people all the time, you have to find newer, better strategies for dealing with that stress. Cause there's no one, no one listening and certainly not you or I that don't experience stress. It's just, how do I deal with the stress when it pops up? And, and for a lot of people, food is their comfort. And so that can be that can be very challenging, very, very challenging. Yeah. And to that point, <clears throat> we, you know, in our society, I mean, just really the way our brain is wired, so easy to get addicted to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So we actually develop a level of dopamine resistance. So between scrolling on our phone, looking at social media, um, you know, that's a big, a big factor, just looking for entertainment, outside sources of entertainment, mm-hmm. food is a big source of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And when we eat, we get that dopamine release, which makes us feel really good. In fact, you know, there's a a part of our brain, our hypothalamus, where our hunger center and our thirst center, they're right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And we actually get some level of neuroplasticity where because we're not drinking water as much, food is so abundant, and we get that dopamine hit Mm -hmm. where we'll oftentimes be thirsty, but we'll experience it. We'll think we're actually hungry. In fact, a lot of times salt cravings, believe it or not, are more of a craving for water and electrolytes, mm-hmm. which really is, you know, how our nervous system creates energy. And, um, and so we're, we'll constantly turn to the food when we really think we're really thirsty. And so kind of getting somebody off of that sort of cycle at times, um, you know, be, because their body is not responding well to dopamine, they need a big hit of dopamine in order to feel good. They can have some emotional issues as mm-hmm. they're going through that. And, uh, you know, that's a really big thing to help somebody work through. Are you experiencing that? Are you seeing that with people? I do. And and I think there's also this compare comparisonitis or FOMO, you know, people that are so they're, they're watching other people in, and a good example is the masterclass that just started. And I'm noticing the psychology behind it. My whole team is in this group to support people. And there's always the person who comes in and they're very proud of their results. And so they talk about the results and then there are, I don't know, 10 other people who then start comparing themselves. And I always say, it's a race, not a journey. Everyone is different. Everyone is coming to this, not at a level playing field. Some people need to lose 50 pounds. Some people just want to tweak for body composition. And so the recognition that, um, you know, the emotional aspects of fasting are huge. I, I think one of the most common problems that I see is people overeating when they break their fast. And it's interesting. I had a a researcher, Glenn Livingston, who was amazing. And he was talking about, you know, this, this feast famine that for some people it trips, you know, the amygdala. And so they're, they're so like their body, like intellectually, they may say, okay, I know I'm supposed to sit down. I'm supposed to have this, you know, relatively small meal to break my fast, but their body goes, we don't know we're getting, when we're getting food again. And so I have to like dive into this plate and completely overeat and then they're stuffed and then they're miserable and then they feel badly. And so it starts this cycle of just feeling badly about themselves. And so I, I think there's so much to be said about, you know, the, the component of hormones and neurotransmitters that absolutely positively drive a lot of behavior. I also think a lot about, you know, the dopamine, serotonin, um, you know, uh, kind of influence of one another. And when those aren't being met or those levels aren't healthy or where they should be, that that can be hugely problematic. And again, feeds into sleep. Sometimes I see the cascade of sleep issues 
also impact those neurotransmitters and then you know people don't sleep well and so it's just this it the domino effect of you know one thing after another but i think it's such a good point to to mention that our kind of overstimulated environment that we live and work in is contributing to a lot of these behavior mal maladaptations is how i would probably look at it and you know i certainly see more of this now than i ever have i, I think that our our times that we're in are, are timely, but they're also kind of magnifying a lot of the behaviors that I've seen over the last 20 plus years, but now they're like really magnified. Like if someone has a propensity for binge eating, it's it's gotten magnified. If someone has a propensity for restrictive behavior, that's gotten magnified. If someone's depressed, that can be magnified. And so trying to adapt a program to be able to support people where they are. That's really what it comes down to. And I, I think the best clinicians like yourself and myself and, and so many other people in this space, recognizing people are all on their own journey. So there's not a one size fits all mentality, certainly not for either gender yeah. and certainly not as it pertains to intermittent fasting. They're just kind of nice guidelines to kind of work through and then acknowledging some people, they, they don't progress as quickly and that's okay. Hey, I just want to take a quick moment and tell you about my new book, The Fasting Transformation. I am so excited about this book. It is a functional guide to help you burn fat, heal your body, and transform your life with intermittent and extended fasting. Fasting is the most ancient form of natural medicine. And in this book, I take you on a journey to help you understand how fasting improves your blood sugar and your insulin sensitivity, how it shuts down inflammation in your body, optimizes your hormones, turns on fat burning, and helps activate stem cells and deep cellular healing. Guys, you're gonna learn so much from this book. You can check it out, The Fasting Transformation on Amazon or on our webpage, drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. So check that out now. You guys are gonna love the book. And if you have a chance, leave a review on Amazon. Thanks so much. Yeah, exactly. And, and you also made a really good point there where you're talking about a lot of times people will eat too much. And at the same time, some people will eat too little because they're so used to counting calories. So their their thinking is still, okay, I can only eat 400 calories in this meal or whatever it is. And, and so ultimately, you know, I always try to teach people, you should feel really good after a meal. Like, you know, you really should, should feel good heading into the meal, right? You shouldn't be, be fatigued or irritable or anything like that. Um, you should feel good heading into the meal, you eat your meal, and then you should feel good after the meal. Um, now, you don't want to do a lot of activity after the meal. You want to give your digestive system a chance to work. It's got to use a lot of energy, but you should feel good. You should feel fairly mentally alert, um, be able to do the things you want to do. I do recommend some sort of like a siesta, especially if you're eating a good-sized meal. Just don't put stress on yourself. Um, however, in general, you should feel pretty good. If you're feeling really sluggish after a meal, it's a sign that you probably ate too much or you may not be producing enough stomach acid, uh, digestive enzymes, things like that, all, all kinds of things that I know you're helping people with. Um, but there's a sign of some sort of underlying issue or possibly just ate too much you know, that, that you're not able to, to, to handle. Or if you're feeling really fatigued heading into the meal, you know, that's a sign that um, you know, your, pro your blood sugar is dropping too low and your body's not good at burning fat for fuel yet, or possibly just done too much fasting for your system. So you, yeah. so you got to listen to that feedback. Well, and I think it's interesting. There was a discussion on Twitter yesterday, and I think my tweet was along the lines of, um, 
what's the best health advice? And I put wrong answers only. So of course people don't read the whole tweet and then yeah. people are putting in like funny things that are kind of conventional dogma. And there was a big discussion about satiety versus fullness. And so the semantics that go on, and I always think to myself, sometimes when people want to argue, like, I mean, it's really semantics. It's like minutia that people are arguing about. And, and so there was like differing opinions about what's, what, what, to, you know, signify satiety versus fullness. Yeah. And I mean, the back and forth was hilarious, but much to your point, um, you know, when people tell me they're tired after a meal, I agree absolutely that they ate too much or too many carbs or people yeah. still feel like they're full, but they want to keep eating. I'm like, okay, macros are totally off. And I think it's a really, really uh, sign of the times people are still fixated on calories. And so People ask me all the time, well, how many calories do you eat a day? I'm like, I don't track my calories. I don't, our body doesn't even know how to recognize calories. Like that's our body recognizes food um, and, you know, protein and, and fat and carbohydrates. And so I, I think we've done a serious disservice for anyone to think that they can burn off a certain amount of calories. So therefore they can eat the Reese's peanut butter cups because they have to go run five miles to get rid of that Reese's peanut butter cup. And so I remind people, I'm like, I would much rather that you structure your meals in a way that you can enjoy an indulgence, hopefully not the Reese's peanut butter cup as an aside, but a, a healthier version of one. Yeah, but keto, right? keto yeah, I always say like, if you look at the ingredient list and that's, that's yeah. another thing. And I'm, I'm sure you do a great job with this, but I tell people, I'm like, I think the statistic I heard last week from Ben Bickman was that the most consumed fat in the United States is soybean oil. Yeah. And soybean, like seed oils are just about the worst thing in the world. And and my teenage boys, I mean, they, they want to have, you know, fun foods. And so trying to find a chip that doesn't have junk in it is practically impossible. But the, the point of why I'm sharing this is, you know, the calorie dogma is one that completely irks me and the counting calories, because it's really does people a disservice. It makes, I think in many ways it, creates a degree of anxiety on top of everything else. Um, you know, there's a there's a big fit pro um, who will remain unnamed who talks about tracking macros. And I've ended up getting a lot of her people that have gone through her program and they're so stressed out by the time they come to me because they've gotten so fatigued from tracking macros for a year or two. And I just said, stop tracking macros. You know, you know what, you know, your portion size looks like. You've been doing this for a while. Just give yourself permission uh, the only time I even recommend tracking macros, if someone's trying to really get a sense of like, what does a portion look like? I'm like, okay, in that instance, perhaps, but I think it can be an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive pursuit for so many. Yeah, exactly. And I really, just like you, I really fall into more of the hormonal model. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, you mentioned how we actually do not need carbohydrates. We can actually produce our own carbohydrates which is totally true, but we what we do need is insulin, and mm -hmm. insulin responds to carbohydrates. Now, we hear about insulin being a bad thing, which for most people in our society, they're producing too much insulin because they've been eating lots of carbs. Uh, however, too low insulin can also be a big factor, especially when it comes to our hormones. So okay. I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, well, and I, I do see, you know, sometimes I'll have women come to me that have been doing intermittent fasting for a while, they're in perimenopause, transitioning into menopause. And I remind them that, you know, there's this very close interrelationship with really low estrogen or estradiol, really low insulin and bone health. And so I have to remind them that, you know, you don't want to be doing these. I'm, I'm just not a fan of people doing prolonged fasts frequently. And especially if they're at a healthy weight already, 
um, men or women for that matter. I, I think, you know, periodically that's fine, but women in particular, I, and I remind them that when I start looking at labs and someone's got an insulin of like 1.5, 2.0, uh, and they're close to perimenopause, perimenopause, menopause, I just remind them that too much of any one thing is not beneficial. So it may be shorter fasts. Uh, maybe they're doing every other day fasting. I think that it goes without saying that there's this close interrelationship between insulin and cortisol and estrogen and, and how critically important it is to try to mitigate and balance those as much as you can. So it goes back to the triad of how do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you manage your stress? And if you can dial in on those. And also there's a, a, a very underappreciated hormone called oxytocin. Mm. And we know that oxytocin has this complete effect on cortisol. And so it doesn't mean that you have to be having um, relations every day with your partner, but hugging your kids, hugging your pet, hugging your significant other, um, you know, doing something, you know, with your friends that brings you joy. I mean, oxytocin is that kind of prompts this relaxation. It's the hormone that's secreted when mothers are breastfeeding their babies. And I always think back to, you know, those special, those special years when I was doing that and how nice and relaxed I was. And so I remind people, we really want to be making a conscientious effort to be mitigating the stress response as much as we kind of doesn't mean you walk around in a haze. It just means that you really need to be proactive in order to properly balance your hormones. And, you know, I also think about um, other hormones like leptin is one that comes up. We just did a leptin reset in one of my monthly groups. And I think people were surprised um, at how prevalent like leptin resistance can impact appetite, satiety, weight loss. And so I remind people that there's a whole con, there are many, there are, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hormones, but some of the really key big ones that people may be more familiarized with are really important for us to keep them dialed in. Because if someone says to me, I have tons and tons of cravings, I start thinking, is it dopamine? Is it leptin? Is it an insulin problem? Is it cortisol? You know, just kind of understanding these nuances between all of these hormones and neurotransmitters, serotonin is another one, um, are, are so incredibly important. And, and that's why I, I, you know, loved reading your book because you address a lot of these things in a way that's very accessible. I think there are plenty of resources out there on the, you know, the web that are, you know, you dive into a research article and you come out going, I'm someone who's got a pretty darn good education. I'm like, I don't know what to make of this, you know, animal model. You know, how do we extrapolate this to people that are, you know, just trying to apply a principle or a strategy to their day to day? But yeah, insulin is definitely insulin is obviously um, really, really critical that we have that managed. But you know, much to the point of, you know, if insulin's really high, and the the recent high one I saw was thirty. Um, and then I had one that was 1.5 and I was like, okay, so somewhere in between definitely yeah. on the lower end is where we want to be, but too much, too much insulin and too little insulin can be incredibly harmful and can contribute to some other issues that I know most of the listeners really want to try to avoid. Yeah, for sure. We need these hormones all to be in really a delicate balance. That's the key. And you mentioned oxytocin, which is a wonderful hormone. So really our love hormone. And that's a it's kind of a great harmonizer, really, of all of our hormones and neurotransmitters. So physical touch, laughter, you know, connecting with people is actually a harmonizer. It's so amazing how God created us to where that helps harmonize all of our hormones and really helps optimize our, our health. And so, you know, if you're not doing enough of that, being around friend groups, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, obviously having a good relationship with your spouse, your kids, it's just so important for all of this. And we, we rarely talk about it because we're talking about food strategies, but it's so critical. Well, and it, I think I feel um, on many levels, I mean, I'm a very heart directed person. You know, my heart really goes out to people who've been socially isolated. Um, I have a couple friends who are single and have gone through divorces and they were saying how, you know, that yeah. the concept of dating right now for them is not even an option and how they feel like they have to, you know, they were grateful when they were able to start seeing their family again and even some work friends because being so isolated can can really exacerbate a lot of the emotional things that we've already touched on. And, and I think the one thing I've come to find out is that during social distancing and, and during the pandemic, I think people have really been able to reevaluate their lives in many ways and either being very grateful for, you know, their family unit or saying, you know, this isn't working and I need to make changes. And, and, you know, regardless of what decision people make out of the, out of the pandemic, I think that um, for the people who are paying attention, it's like taking something intentionally from an otherwise uh, not ideal situation. And it's like, how can I make my life better? Do I need to make changes? Um, and if I do, that's okay. That's totally okay. Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. Well, let's talk about your, daily routine what are you doing on a regular basis um as far as fasting what are some of your favorite meals that you like to make for yourself and your family great question well i'm usually up by five or six i tend to be someone that likes to get up get a workout in um, i usually start with meditation um, as much as it pains me i do check in with my team to see if there's anything that i have to address but i try to stay off social media for the first couple tries the operative word social <laughs> media um when i go to the gym or if i'm working out from home i try i i endeavor to always be learning i just enjoy learning so i'm either listening to a book or i am listening to a podcast and um, applying the things that i'm learning i think that's that's critically important I always make sure I get light exposure in the morning without sunglasses. And so I have two doodles uh, that people, if they follow me on social media, they're, they're like the antics. It's like having two more children in our house. And so I always get, you know, a couple mile walk in with them as well. And it's really important to me. I didn't fully appreciate this uh, when I was working as an NP, but I do now. First couple hours in the morning are pretty important for me to set the tone for the day. My kids are teenagers, so they get themselves up. We're still socially distanced. They only go to school two days a week. The other two days, other three days, they're home um, and they're they're doing school from home. Um, but I get up, um, you know, I make sure I've got water with electrolytes. That's really important. I try to get 20 ounces of water in. I always have green tea. I'm not a coffee drinker. And then typically I get behind the computer uh, around 10 a.m. And that's when I will like start my day officially. But I would say I lately have been doing probably 16 to 18 hours most days. That's what works. I mean, some days I just get busy and I'm, I miss, you know, opening my window up earlier. If I'm really, really hungry, some days I'll break my fast at 15 hours. I have no problems doing that. I don't beat myself up. So I usually like to break my fast with something light. Um, I might have eggs. I might have a light salad. Uh, I've even had some coconut milk yogurt lately with some macadamia nuts. I'm not sure. That's just, I think it's the salt. I, I yeah. definitely, you know, kind of lean into feeling if I want something that has some salt, I have no problems doing that. And then I will usually have a larger meal um, in between work in the afternoon. Um, and then I typically will ramp down my feeding window around five or six o'clock. Now, I have boys, I have teenage boys. So there's a lot of meat consumption in my house. I would say that. Things like carnitas, 
um, fajitas. I mean, we cook a lot of meat and then we kind of go from there. I made a bolognese the other night. Uh, we've had bison burgers. I try to get fish in once a week. My kids don't love fish. So usually salmon, like a fatty fish, wild caught salmon. Uh, occasionally they'll do shrimp. But I would say a lot of what we do is very much focused on non-starchy vegetables and protein. My kids always have a starch. I have one that transitioned from football to doing track and another one is a competitive swimmer. So they actually earn their carbohydrates. So it could be potatoes, it could be squash, which is not their favorite. In fact, if they heard me saying that, they would probably laugh. They like rice. They will eat quinoa if persuaded. Um, they're not a huge fans of like the ancient grains, although I try, I definitely endeavor. And then occasionally they'll have gluten-free pasta, which I'm fine with. Um, but for me, I tend to be, I would say carnivore ish, but I'm starting to find since I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor that my body actually wants a little less protein, a little more fat. So I would say I've been bordering on keto most of the time. And then having you know, one dedicated day out of the week where I have three meals, three solid meals, I maybe fast 12 hours. And that has worked really well for me. And occasionally, I would say that occasionally I'll do longer fast, but um, I was hospitalized in 2019. And since that time, it took me, it took me months to be able to get back to a fasting regimen. And since that time, I haven't really had a desire to do a really long fast. I used to do, you know, two, three day fasts, and now I just don't want to do them. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll walk clients through that, but I don't have a burning desire because I'm, I'm at a healthy goal weight and yeah. I can see the net effect uh, because of the continuous glucose monitor. If I'm fasting too long, I'll watch my, you know, blood sugar start to kind of climb. Um, and even the lumen data, you know, I trend with the lumen as well. I'll yeah. see that data as well. So I think that, um, overall I'm, I would say carnivore ish keto, I try to eat lots of non-starchy vegetables every day as much as I can tolerate because I actually um, enjoy eating them. I think people are surprised to hear that. I don't really love having a lot of starchy carbs. So it usually sticks to squash, a little bit of quinoa occasionally or ancient grains. And I do love blueberries. I would say that's probably mm. like my one fruit that I really, I could eat it every day. I'd be totally happy. And technically I know avocado is a fruit, but I think of it more as fat. Right. I could right. eat that all the time sure. too. Yeah, I love berries as well. And so, yeah, I have a similar diet, very, uh, very higher protein. My body just does really well on that, uh, higher fat, and then occasionally some some higher carbs from, mm -hmm. from time to time. Um, but for me, I don't really schedule out the carbs. It's more like whatever we're having for dinner. And I've got young kids. I've got twin five-year-olds, uh, almost three-year-old. And probably by the time this airs, actually, uh, my wife is actually pregnant. She's on bed rest right now. Oh, wow. We're about to have our fourth child, little girl. So congratulations. Um, yes. Exciting. Thank you. I appreciate it. But yeah, so we, and, and they eat what we eat. And so, um, you know, really healthy, good stuff uh, that we're doing on a regular basis. And let's talk about um, your top five favorite foods. You mentioned blueberries. What are your I other love, favorite foods? I would say right now, <laughs> I would say salmon. I, I love salmon. I would say blueberries. I'm obsessed with macadamia nuts. I don't eat a lot of them. Like I really will just have a serving, but a salted macadamia nut makes me really, really happy. I would say uh, steak is up there too. I mean, I, I could eat steak almost every day. And I, I truly believe it's important for us to, you know, rotate our proteins. Mm -hmm. And then when I, I, when I was hospitalized for 13 days, I couldn't eat many vegetables for a really long period of time. And what I missed the most were roasted Brussels sprouts. So I love 
good. love Brussels sprouts. So the fact that I can eat them again, you know, you talk about little things yeah. that really make your life so much happier. I would say probably six. And, and for anyone that follows me, they know I'm, I'm like a dark chocolate aficionado. Mm-hmm. I don't eat a lot of it, I love but I like a square of dark chocolate makes me really, really happy. So <laughs> you know, good quality dark chocolate. Um, I like who brand HU. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but super high quality. And to me, it's like, it's so satisfying that I can have that and, and be like totally happy. But yeah, I don't have a lot of vices anymore. It's kind of like all the vices fell away. And, you yeah. know, what I'm left with is a nutritional program that works well for um, me and, and the family as well. So good. Now with your chocolate, do you like it as dark as possible? Like, what is it like 88% or as, as high as you can get with the minimal amount of sugar? Or do you like it with a little bit more sweeter Um, well, I would say like the who brand, I like the one that it's probably 70 or 75, maybe 72%, but it has, see here, it's the key here. It's the salt. It has sea salt. (laughs) So it's like, give me the dark chocolate with some salt. And oh my gosh, that's like the per, I don't need nuts in it. I don't need fruit in it. Give me that. And it's so satisfying, but I mean, realistically, I do eat a higher percentage of, you know, um, chocolate, like I'll do 80%, but then it gets to a point where it bitters, it it gets so bitter that you then are like, okay, like I, I want to just enjoy my square and enjoy the one that's 70%. I don't like milk chocolate at all. I think it's kind of like garbage, but, um, really high quality dark chocolate. I'm like, I'm a total dark chocolate snob. Like my husband knows this over the years he's bought some brands. I take one bite. I'm like, Oh, it's too like alkaline or, you know, you can just tell it's been burned. Like it's almost like the chocolate, um, oxidized. And so it doesn't taste good. So in my house, my kids are completely spoiled because they don't know what crappy chocolate is because over the years I've always, you know, if we put a chocolate bar in a, you know, an Easter basket or in a, a stocking at Christmas time, they didn't get crappy chocolate. So they don't really know what that is or they do. They, they're kind of like, what is this? I'm like, I know, I know that's a totally spoiled you, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Our, my kids, uh, their idea of candy is, um, we have these, um, these multivitamin chewables, right. That we make, you know, no sugar flavored with stevia and they have vitamin D gummies. That's their, their idea of candy. Right. No, no. And you're, you're in like this beautiful, wonderful space. Like when I, I was actually saying to my husband that I was looking at photos from a trip we did when the boy, the, my boys are two years apart. And I was like, Oh, that stage, it's so much work, but it's so wonderful. And then, you know, every stage is wonderful, but then you get to the point where they're taller than you. They're stronger than you. You know, they look down, like they literally physically look down on you. And it's such an interesting dynamic. And I tell them all the time, it's not until we travel, like we just got back from Charleston for spring break. And I was saying, you know, we ate out because you're on vacation. And we came home and my oldest was like, I just love the way like we cook, we don't eat out a lot. And, you know, my husband and I are both good cooks, which is a blessing. But, you know, you just come to realize that, you know, whatever environment you create for your family at home is what they become accustomed to. And like my kids don't feel good generally if they eat like crappy food yeah. um, and, and they're old enough now that they make choices. And I'm like, okay, you're going to eat that horrendous yeah. pile of crap. And then you're going to be sick for two days. And that's inevitably what happens. And they don't do it again for another year, but you have to really start them off as I know you and your, you and your wife are already doing 
with really good habits because that'll foster continued good decisions. Like they'll go to birthday parties and my kids were always the kids, the kids that were interested in trying the junk and then they would eat the junk and they would come home and they would be sick. Yeah. And so they were like, Oh, I don't want to do that again. Yeah, so yeah. trying to navigate, um, you know, raising children in a society that oftentimes doesn't necessarily value food quality can be interesting slash challenging. It is interesting, you know, at church, uh, we, are, we go to church on Wednesdays and Sundays and um, they give snacks and things like that. And our kids just know that they're like, oh, there's probably gluten in that. Or, <laughs> it's not organic. Like they can tell you what organic means. <clears throat> and um, so they'll actually ask if we're somewhere. They're like, daddy, is that organic? And I'll be like, well, this actually isn't, but that's okay. Or yeah. you know, I'll have to explain it to them. But <clears throat> I'm so happy about that. They actually know that. They understand it. And uh, they're good rule followers. Now, my little, uh, my our, our daughter, Joyful, who's almost three, she's more adventurous. She's kind of like her mama. She wants to try everything. Yeah. Um, so exactly. That's like the, yeah. the true, like your twins are like yeah. firstborns and then your second yeah. born. Yeah, my second born is like that. He's not the rule follower. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. Well, see, this has been a great interview and I know our audience has gotten a lot of value out of it. And you've got these intermittent fasting masterclasses that you're doing as well, where you're really walking people through all the steps and strategies. Obviously, people can always go out and buy my book and read about it, but it's great to have a coach to really help walk you through and navigate it because everybody's different. Everybody's unique. Um, and just knowing the information and even just listening to an interview like this can help you get started. But you know, there's going to be some challenges, some roadblocks that come up. So it's really good to have a coach. Tell us a little bit more about those masterclasses. Yeah. So it's called IF45. So it's a 45 day program and I do them quarterly. So we're, we're yeah. doing one in April, we'll do one in July and then one in October. And the really nice thing is as I'm writing this book, I've created a coaching program. And so I have 12 people that are in a beta test phase. And um, it's really exciting to know that, you know, when the book comes out, they'll be able to teach the strategies to their own clients. And so it is, um, you know, there are live calls with me, which is usually the big, the big draw, but we have, you know, private, private groups that everyone is in and, and we're able to, you know, answer questions. Um, there's an amazing uh, workbook and there's a whole recipe guide and um, lots of, I always say the best tips and tricks, because now I've taught this class, gosh, for the last two years. And so over, I always say, I'm, I'm grateful for every person that's ever been in the program, because each time we teach it, it's even stronger and better than the last time. And what was really nice to see this time around is we had quite a few men in addition to women, they could just be partners of some of the individuals in the group, but it's a nice kind of combined effort and, you know, record enrollment, which is always really exciting because uh, we're impacting so many lives. I always say that you know, after years and years and years of writing prescriptions, there's nothing more gratifying to me than being able to teach people a strategy that they can use to you know, live their best lives and to be empowered. I, I think that's many, that's one of the things that really bothered me in the current kind of medical paradigm for chronic and preventative care management. I don't want to knock on my acute care people because, you know, we still need to have urgent and emergent kind of care, but the, you know, chronic disease model, the preventative disease model doesn't do enough yeah. to support patients in being able to make nutritional changes, make lifestyle changes. We just aren't, we aren't compensated. And that's why that's not the focus. It's a pill and I'll send you out the door and I'll see you in six weeks. And so at least with this, I feel like, uh, you know, clients can use this strategy, apply it in their personal lives, share the information with their loved ones, 
be able to really make progress and work in conjunction with their healthcare providers. I always say I'm all about, you know, collaboration and I've never, I have never once had a clinician be upset with any of the work that we're doing because it's, it's a gap that is so needed. You know, the, the work that you and I do is so needed in our medical system and medical model that um, it's really exciting to feel like you're enacting change and not having to write a prescription to do it. Yeah, it's amazing. You'd be surprised too about how many actual medical doctors and medical professionals are actually listening to your podcast. Mm -hmm. They're following us. I, I'm always surprised. I'll meet a doctor somewhere and I'll be like, oh, I read your website, you know, or whatever it is. And uh, so people are, they're, they're realizing, hey, we need to find answers elsewhere. You know, our disease management tools are just not working. Mm -hmm. um, and there are better strategies that we can learn and, and utilize for ourselves. They want to take good care of their families and their own health. And so this information is getting out. And Cynthia, you're really on the cutting edge. You're a great leader in this. And I just want to commend you for all the great work that you're doing. Looking forward to your book coming out next year. Guys, you can check her out, CynthiaTurlow.com. Let's check her out. And you can get on the waiting list for her next masterclass. So she does those every three months. And that'll be really, really valuable for you, especially if you've had struggles uh, putting this into practice. Having that coach, having that accountability group uh, is going to really help you at this. So thank you again, Cynthia. We'll have everything in the show notes, guys, that you can check out. And um, we'll see you guys on a future podcast. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.